morning, everyone. My name is Zeke Wettstein, and I am grateful for the opportunity to open God's Word to you all this morning. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. I figured Will Click would appreciate it if I made it two weeks in a row with a Tolkien reference. So, for those of you that fit into the former category, let me very briefly introduce myself. As I said, my name is Zeke. Uh, my wife, Cassie, is over there. Uh, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary just a few weeks ago. So we are both on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and we work with college students uh, on campus at UW-Madison, helping equip those students to bring the gospel to the campus and the world. And we have called Red Village Church our home since early in our time when we were students at the university here. So this is my first time preaching and preparing to speak today has given me a much greater appreciation for the weight that Pastor Aaron and the other church leaders bear. This has been a great learning experience for me and I'm very grateful and humbled to be here. But please give me grace today as I try and lead us faithfully through the text. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. I will be leading us through verses 1 through 11 this morning. So Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please follow me in prayer. Dear God, thank you for your word. Pray that you would help me to speak well so that your truths may be heard and that you would work within all of our hearts that we might be transformed. Please prepare our hearts and help us to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, over the last few weeks, we've been working through the book of Philippians. I want to recall a few things for us today as we enter into the text. Through the first two chapters, Paul continually reminds the church to rejoice in the Lord. This is something we'll see again today. Paul also uses a lot of language in the eternal perspective, meaning he has his mind set on heaven, 
and not just on earthly things. He talks about his desire that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and how for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he speaks of them working out their salvation. Knowing Christ and having that relationship be the basis of our salvation will be a theme we will see throughout this passage. And with that, let's dive in. Paul begins verse 1 by transitioning back to his theme of rejoicing in the Lord. His next words in verse 1 are understood to be emphasizing different things. So one such understanding would be that he is saying, it is no trouble for me to tell you again to rejoice in the Lord, just like he has been in the, earlier in the letter. The other understanding of this phrase applies to his warning against the false teachers that he brings up in verse 2. And he is referencing his earlier conversations he had about this while he was still with them. Because both make sense, are things Paul emphasizes in other ways, and add to the introduction of this letter. I'm going to share a little bit on both understandings. So, if we see this as a means of reminding the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, and to remind them of the other eight times that he mentioned it in the first half of this letter, Paul uses this to introduce a section on the need for us to give up our self-righteousness in order to gain the righteousness of Christ and follow in Jesus' example of a life of sacrifice. It is good and safe, as he says, to remind them to rejoice as he begins this more difficult call to their lives. And just as it is safe to remind the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, it is safe for us at Red Village Church to rejoice in the Lord as we hear this call to give up self-righteousness. Do not take God's call to our lives with a grieving heart, but with a heart of praise as we seek the righteousness of Christ. In seeing this as a means of reminding the Philippians of his previous warnings against false teachers, we might remember that across Paul's other epistles and the book of Acts, specifically in chapter 15, we can see the issue where some false teachers wanted to require circumcision and the following of the law of Moses for salvation. This was a continually addressed issue and a continued threat to both Jews and Gentiles in the newly forming Christian church. Paul is then using this to call the Philippians to remember all of the previous warnings and to reiterate how they need to be on guard against false teachers. This isn't a minor issue. This is one of significant weight. Paul wants to ensure they remember that nothing should be ever be added as requirements for salvation except for faith alone. Looking on to verse 2, follow, Paul follows his short introduction to this section of topics by using some rather harsh and offensive language to describe the people who are trying to put extra requirements upon salvation. Now, he isn't just trying to be mean when he uses this language, but rather he is seeking to show the depth of the depravity their false teaching casts upon them. It is all to paint a picture, once again, of the severity of this issue and the great weight it is to lead others astray. He first calls them dogs, but the Christians who first read this wouldn't be thinking about your golden doodle or daisy next door. But instead, their image would be something more of a hyena, prowling around, scaring kids off, and eating whatever scraps it can find. Self-righteous Jews would often describe pagan Gentiles as dogs. But Paul flips that on his head here. As one commentator put it, these people, the false teachers, were more deserving of the name than any Gentile because of the way they liked to prowl around Christian congregations 
seeking to win Gentile converts over to Judaism. Paul continues his barrage with evildoers, or more accurately, evil workers, for they are not just doing evil, but they're working for the cause of evil, and they're adding works to salvation, which is evil. Through the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, Paul uses circumcision, the sign of the covenant God made with his people, to emphasize his point. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he gave the sign of circumcision as a way of separating the people of Israel who followed the one true God from all other peoples. It was a symbol of them being a set-apart and holy people before God, but instead of just being a symbol of a promise for them to have faith in, circumcision in many ways became their hope and faith. No longer did they have an outward marking to show their inward faith, but they had an external sign that in itself accomplishes nothing and was merely a mutilation of their flesh. Paul instead calls this largely uncircumcised Gentile Christian audience the circumcision because they are marked and set apart people, not by the mutilation of their flesh as an outward sign done by human hands, but they are marked and set apart by the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, a sign that can only be performed by God and is bound on a new and better covenant, which is not dependent on the flesh. It is these true Christians who don't put their confidence in the deeds and markings and achievements of the flesh, but in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul then begins his elaboration on why we should not put our confidence in the flesh in verse 4. He states that he himself has reason for confidence in the flesh also, and that if anyone else thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul has more. By confidence in the flesh, Paul is talking about the things based on our abilities, achievements, or status that are our reasons for living, our cause for joy and fulfillment, or the basis of our actions and motivations in life. Paul gives his fleshly confidence resume then, stating all the reasons the culture and the world around him tell him that he is good enough to rely on himself and to show that his denunciation of the need to follow the law of Moses was not due to his own lack of good standing underneath the Mosaic law. This is also the beginning of his call to join in imitating me that he gives in chapter 3, verse 17, which will be covered more next week. So, here are the things that give Paul reason for confidence in the flesh. Paul is a covenant-following Jew. He is one who bears the sign of circumcision done on the eighth day, just as God commanded. He was born into the people of Israel. He isn't a convert to Judaism, but a chosen descendant of Abraham. He is a part of the tribe of Benjamin, the one tribe who remained faithful to the kingly line of David in Judah, despite the rest revolting. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were faithful Jews, so he was born into a family who raised him according to the law. Not only was he raised by faithful parents, though. He was taught by the best teachers so as to become a Pharisee. He wasn't just any Pharisee, though. He was a zealous one whose desire to protect the law was so great that he became a persecutor of the early church. And in the eyes of all of those around him, he was righteous under the law. He was a blameless Pharisee zealot who sought to follow and defend the law of Moses, no matter the cost. 
But whatever gain Paul had from these things, he counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is for Christ's sake that Paul suffered the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish so that he could gain Christ. It is my hope, my brothers and sisters, that we might be able to say this of ourselves with such confidence. Let's break this down a little bit more. Considering all that Paul had going for himself, we get just a taste of the magnitude of the goodness of Christ when seeing how Paul counted all this as loss to follow Jesus. One wouldn't give up something valuable for something of less value and then be rejoicing. Paul uses the word loss here, and the only other context this word is used in is to describe valuable cargo on a ship being thrown overboard in the midst of a murderous storm in an effort to lighten the ship and maybe have the crew survive. So, Paul didn't just push his fleshly accomplishments to the side to make room for Christ, but rather he cast his confidence in the flesh to the depths of the sea to give his all to Christ. Paul goes on in verse 8 to say that not only did he count all this as loss at his conversion to Christ, but he continues to count everything as loss because of how valuable it is to know Jesus. He says that he suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish because of the value of gaining Christ. One example of this in Paul's story of how little he gained in earthly things when he threw his old life away to accept Christ is that on his first few attempts at gathering with other Christians, they didn't believe that he was telling the truth about his conversion, and they tried to kill him multiple times. Can you imagine if when you showed up to church for the first time saying you were a believer, the congregation tried to kill you? It wouldn't it would have to be a truly compelling gospel to still draw you in when all of that is happening. So it isn't exactly a life of status in the Christian world that Paul switched into. The way he continued pressing onward into a life with Christ shows that his gain is in Christ and Christ alone, and everything else, including social status, are rubbish to him, things to be thrown to the dogs. Moving on to verse 9 we begin to see more of the outcome of giving our, our flesh to gain Christ. And it all has to do with where we derive our righteousness. Here, Paul compares the righteousness of our own from the law with the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The law Paul is speaking of here is the Old Testament law that God gave to his people, Israel, through Moses. There were a lot of rules and regulations for how God's holy and set-apart people are supposed to live. And in order to be able to be with God, who is perfect, we would need to perfectly follow every one of his laws. These were good laws intended to guide the people to live a godly life, but they were impossible to keep perfectly by man because of the brokenness of sin in the world. The main purpose they served, as we see in Paul's letter to the Romans, was so that their sin might increase and that they might recognize their need for a perfect righteousness that doesn't come from their own actions and ability to follow the law. It is this flawed sense of righteousness in the following of the law that many Jews, and especially Pharisees, like Paul before his conversion, pursued. 
they had lost sight of their obvious imperfection and need for a savior in their pursuit of being better than others around them and thinking that being good enough and better than the other guy would be enough to get them into heaven. They lost sight of their deep need for the Messiah to come and live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death for their sins so that if they believe in him, they might be saved. Worse than that, the Judaizers mentioned in verse 2 had lost sight of believing in the death and resurrection of Christ being the only means of attaining the resurrection of the dead. Pursuit of a righteousness found in imperfectly following a law that demands perfection is a futile life with no results beyond what little earthly gain can be grabbed. And this is why Paul is saying it cannot be added as a requirement for salvation because it accomplishes nothing. This is why we at Red Village Church believe that the wooden cross and the empty tomb mean everything. Because the only way for us to be righteous is for us to count our own righteousness as rubbish and gain the righteousness of Christ through our faith in him. This isn't to say that we aren't to do good works or that we aren't to pursue living like Christ, but only that our salvation is not found in our works. In verses 10 and 11, Paul concludes this section with his goal of in putting his faith in Christ. He gives three things so that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, so that he may share in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, he might attain the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul seeks to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And when Paul uses the word know here, he doesn't just mean to know about Jesus like to know some of the facts and stories, but rather he means to be in a deep and intimate relationship with him, which does take knowing some of the facts and stories, but more than that, it means knowing and being with the person. We must also know the power of his resurrection. Suffering the loss of all things can only truly take place when we know the power of the resurrection and have the great value of that as the aim and hope in our suffering. Paul seeks to share in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in death. When we accept Christ, we accept his calling for our lives. In John 15, Jesus tells his followers that they will be persecuted and the world will hate them for following him, just as the world persecuted and hated him. In choosing to follow a system based on God and not on the world and its values, we should expect this. And because it means we get to live a life more like Christ, we should rejoice in it. It is a glorious thing for us to be able to suffer in Christ. Rejoicing in suffering is a whole other package of information. Dave touched on this in his sermon on Philippians 2, 12 through 18, two weeks ago. Uh, however, if you have questions on this, I would encourage you to engage with them. Come talk to me or one of the elders after the service. Otherwise, Pastor Aaron has a great sermon that addresses this based on 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Uh, he gave it in 2016, and it can be found on the website. As a warning, though, they did apparently think it was super cool to put short rock music transitions into their audio sermons back then, so just be aware of that. Finally, Paul closes out this section we are looking at today with his final goal, that he may attain the resurrection of the dead by any means possible. The desire Paul has for being with Christ in heaven is deep, as it should be for all Christians. 
Wes spoke on this when we read Paul's words earlier in the letter. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul also stated the depth of his desire to spend eternity with Christ by saying he seeks to attain it by any means possible. He's willing to make any sacrifice, give up any object or value, and suffer to whatever degree necessary so that he might not fall short of salvation. Once again, Paul is counting all things as rubbish so that he may gain Christ. Throughout this section of the letter, we can see the warnings against false teachers who seek to add things to the gospel and how dangerous and evil it is to dabble in adding self-found righteousness to our lives, personal worth, and salvation. Paul uses this issue to transition into speaking another warning for the church on the ways that we might try and add our own self-righteousness to salvation instead of counting it all as rubbish. As I try to wrap up this passage, I'm going to break this idea down into three questions and speak a bit on each. I'll have the main topics of each on the slide to help keep things a little bit more organized. So, first question. What are the things of the flesh that we take confidence in and struggle to count as rubbish? What do we struggle to count as rubbish? Paul's resume of sorts in verses 5 and 6 of all the reasons he had for confidence in the flesh was very contextualized for the time he lived, and in some cases, I think it makes us forget that we in many ways are similar. Here are three images that serve as contextualizations to us of where we might be seeking to find our righteousness, worth, and purpose in, instead of in Christ. As I talk through them, I want to invite you to consider if any of these things, or something else that comes to mind, might be something that you are finding your righteousness in, instead of fully in Christ. To begin with, I will begin with what it might look like if we sought a worldly self-righteousness. Uh, we might put our value in our social media appearance and make sure other people only see the perfect facade that we put out. We might make our physical appearance and how attractive people find us our top priority and something that drives us to work out or to lose weight. Or it could be that we let our popularity give us our value and be our main purpose in life. We might want people to think we are cool or confident or that we know how to dress in style and have these be our main motivations. Another place we may seek self-righteousness is in our socioeconomic status. We may find that we are happy only when our finances are looking up, or thinking we have more worth because we landed a good job, or that we have a nice house. We might be seeking milestones, such as being debt-free, becoming a millionaire, or having real estate as our own form of financial sanctification. As someone who works on campus, I encounter a lot of students who find their hope in their grades and major, and their ability to achieve success is where they find their meaning and their purpose. There are many other ways we may be seeking self-righteousness, and I'll give just one more example of how we might find ourselves seeking it in our religion. As Christians, we often find our worth and status in other things than in the life of Christ. We find it in our upbringing as a pastor's kid, or in that we have a ton of Bible verses memorized, even if we only memorized them because we wanted candy at Awana. We find it in our knowledge of scripture, or how boring or crazy our testimonies are. We found our righteousness in that we go to church on Sunday, that we don't swear, or maybe that we didn't vote for that immoral candidate in the last election. We might tell our friend 
and we can't come to their tailgate because we have church, but we would never try and share our faith with them because they might not like us as much. We find our righteousness in our actions that seem to make us live like Christians instead of finding our righteousness in Christ himself and in that new identity live a life worthy of his calling. For me, this is the area that I struggle with the most. I have, many reason, I've, I have had many seasons where I have found myself wanting to be seen as a wise spiritual figure by others more because it would make me feel valuable and important than because I actually wanted to serve people in that capacity. The latter was true. I wanted to serve others, but it is not always my primary motive. Now, these aren't necessarily bad things. To be popular or successful, to get good grades, have Bible verses memorized, or to go to church. But when we are finding our value in them and having our actions and accomplishments be the prime motivation for anything and everything that we do, it reveals a deep heart issue. It shows our distrust in Christ as our Lord and reveals our desire to depend on our own abilities to get ourselves to have worth and be fulfilled instead of depending on him who meets those needs for us. Second question. Why should we count all these things as rubbish? Why should we count it all as rubbish? One of the first steps in realizing why we should count it all as rubbish is to understand the value of knowing Christ. To know Christ is to know the Father and to be known by God. To know Christ is to be in an intimate relationship with the sovereign God who created the universe and everything in it. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. When we know him, we get to sit at his table. We will abide in his love. We will never be snatched out of his hand. When we know him, we have his living water that brings true fulfillment. And never again will we be thirsty. God knew that we could never be good enough on our own to join him in paradise forever. So he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life we could never live on earth with us. He, in every respect, was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, but he was raised on the third day. So, if you put your faith in him, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. In comparison to all this, anything we have gained from ourselves is truly less than worthless. It can get us nowhere and gain us nothing that satisfies for longer than even a moment in the perspective of eternity. If you are here today and have not yet put your faith in Christ, I urge you to consider doing so today. For to know Christ is of far greater value than anything else in this world. I, or anyone else here, would love to answer any questions you have and pray with you. We would love to count you as our brother or sister in Christ, but more than that, Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants you to be with him forever. Third question. And final question, what does it look like for us to gain Christ? 
I will give four of the ways that gaining Christ transforms our lives. First, Christ becomes our source of fulfillment. One of the main reasons we hang on to our gain found in the flesh is because we think losing it will result in us feeling more empty. However, through knowing Christ, we find that our joy and fulfillment we had found outside of him was shallow and empty, and that only what comes from him truly fulfills us to no end. He is the only way to have a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Second, Christ becomes our confidence. When we put our faith in Christ, we learn to know the power of his resurrection and his authority over all. Through this, we can have confidence in him instead of trying to find confidence in our ever-failing self. In the same way that the circumcision of the old covenant was done in the flesh, the promises were dependent on flesh. This is why there was need for Jesus to bring a new covenant based on better promises, one not dependent on flesh, but instead dependent on faith in Christ. It is, because this, it is because of this new covenant that we live under is based on Christ that we can put our trust in it. Because Christ will never fail, even when we fail. Christ will never let us be snatched out of the Father's hand. Third, Christ becomes our purpose and calling. When we gain Christ, we also gain his ministry and calling. Jesus calls us his friends because he has made known to us the calling his Father has given him. And so he appoints us to go and bear fruit, to do the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in, to go and make disciples of all nations. We no longer find ourselves bound by the pointless purposes of the flesh, but instead can find our purpose in a far greater calling, to serve the God of the universe in everything that we do. As we live out this calling, we get the joy of serving and suffering with Christ, which when we count all else as rubbish, is something that we can rejoice in. Fourth, and most importantly, Christ is our salvation. This is something that not only permeates our lives and enables us to say that to live is Christ and to die is gain, but also is our eternity. To be saved is to spend eternity with Christ, and there is nothing we should strive for more than to attain this by any means possible. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the good truths and promises that you have for us in this text. I pray that you would protect us from the dogs and evildoers that try and lead us astray. Holy Spirit, would you help to refine us and strip away the things we lean on that pull us away from fully trusting Christ, and that as a church, we might be able to support and encourage one another as we continue seeking to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. I pray that you would help us to know you in the power of your resurrection, that we may take confidence in it, that you would bring us into your calling and purpose that we may serve and suffer with you, and that you would call us home when you appoint it, that we may be with you in paradise for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.